In last week's episode of The Foreign Desk, recorded at the Warsaw Security Forum, we looked at the military and diplomatic angles of the subject which inevitably dominated this year's conference, Ukraine and Russia's invasion of it. This week, we examine a few of the Warsaw Security Forum's principal subplots, the rethinking of European energy policy necessitated by detachment from Russia's pipelines, the continuing quest for the liberation of Russia's semi-ally Belarus from decades of dictatorship, and the potential effects of a testing European winter on European politics and European resolve. We'll hear from the former German foreign policy adviser who helped craft Chancellor Angela Merkel's Russia policy, Belarus's president-in-exile and the defence minister of an EU and NATO country which, while small, has some big ideas about how both alliances could learn that cleaner energy is a national security priority. Did Europe lull itself into a false sense of security where Russia was concerned? Is there somewhere amid this dreadful mess an opportunity to rethink energy as well as defence? And how important a piece of the jigsaw does Belarus remain? This is The Foreign Desk. On the 20th of February, the German foreign minister clearly said, no way we will deliver weapons to Ukraine. But this has changed. Diplomatically, we talked about 2014. 1415, when the first Russian invasion took place, it was Chancellor Merkel together with François Hollande who took the lead. But what is happening with the arms that we delivered to Ukraine, this is clearly a turning point in history. I'm not sure if I see myself as a politician in the future, but now it is my duty, you know, to do what I do. People gave me this mandate and I'm trying to do all my best to release thousands of political prisoners. And while I'm needed, while I have strength, while I have energy, you know, to continue this, I will do this. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Our first guest is Ambassador Christoph Heusken, now chairman of the Munich Security Conference and former permanent representative of Germany to the United Nations. Prior to that, he served as foreign policy and security advisor to former German Chancellor Angela Merkel. There was clearly a lot to talk about, but I began by asking Ambassador Heusken about the value of security conferences. There are several values. There is, first of all, it's a stage, you know, and we had at the Munich Security Conference, President Zelensky on his last trip outside his country gave a passionate speech there. So it's a possibility to present your views and you reach a world audience. Number two, you have good discussions. You have interesting people getting around the table. So you get out of people some responses maybe they didn't want to give, you know, so you get that. And then what I think is very important that you have the possibilities of meetings at the margins. And we have foreign ministers meeting. So what you can do at these conferences where you have all the players, you can have, you know, in the back room discussions, also sometimes between people that don't want to be seen with each other. So this gives you an opportunity to have some back channel talks. So this is why people flock in and, and think it's a useful time spent. I just want to go back to that period in February when the whole world was looking at Russia's border with Ukraine and wondering, will he or won't he? You personally at that point, did you think Russia would actually do it or not? I mean, there's a lot of people clearly didn't think Russia was actually serious. 
Yes, I saw, of course, and this was published, intelligence, the Americans saying that this is going to happen. I thought that Putin would not do it because he should have noticed the unity that was clearly demonstrated at Munich. What I underestimated at the time is one of the key factors that determined the Russian operation, and that was, for me, the fact that Putin was totally isolated. I think at some stage Putin started to believe in his own ideology, you know, and this is what made him then attack, and today he is in so much worse situation than he was before. And somehow with this, you know, in February when I saw this transatlantic unity, it was really strong, I thought Putin would be crazy to try and oppose that unity, but he did. If you think of the parallel universe in which the world reacts to 2014 like the world reacted to 2022, does that get us to a happier place? Today, people say the sanctions that we put on Russia after the annexation and after the occupation was not enough. I can tell you at that time, Chancellor Merkel was running around in Europe from morning to night to actually get these sanctions toughened. And we worked very closely with the Obama administration at the time. We went in sync with putting sanctions on it. So there was no possibility to go further because at the time already you had those countries in the European Union that didn't want to have this. We have the same debate today in a certain stage. I think the key question, of course, is, and you're very kind not to mention it directly, how could Germany then be at the forefront in concluding the Nord Stream 2 agreement. And in retrospect, of course, it was a wrong decision. But you have to put yourself into a place where we were in 2015. After Fukushima, we had decided to leave nuclear power because of emissions. We said no more coal power plants. Green energy was flourishing, but not at the speed that it was necessary. So you need energy. The German business were saying the cheapest energy is Russian gas. And there were warnings, of course. The Baltic country was never against it. But that was the decision that was taken at the time. It was a wrong decision, but one needs to put oneself into the place where You can where only we work were. with so what you know at the what, time. What you know at the time. And now we are scrambling to see how we get out of this problem. But was there ever an idea that if we continue to do business with Russia, if we continue to incorporate them economically into the rest of Europe, that at some point Russia will stop being so much like Russia and become what we might think of as a more normal European company? Or was it just that thing of their energy has always historically been relatively cheap and relatively reliable, so that works for everybody? I think both reasons. First, I think for many years, German business, you know, for that matter, all business, they want to make money and they see where is the cheapest energy come or where does the cheapest products come from. And this has changed over the last years. Now we see with supply chains that companies, the public, are looking much more careful where do your products come from. So that's one thing. The other one is, again, you have to go back to German history. And people don't believe this outside because the Second World War, it's ages, it's 80 years. But at the same time, it's deeply enshrined in the German DNA that what Germany did in the Second World War to the Soviet Union, 20 million dead. And then we did our West integration very successfully, but at the same time we did our Ostpolitik. So we again made friends with Poland, with Russia, despite our history, and they agreed to our reunification. And Putin wouldn't have done that. You know, Gorbachev at the time was a weak Russia, yes, but they were ready for 
more more opening up. So there are many people still in active politics who lived through this period said we owe them something. Russia was ready to allow Germany to reunification. So why don't we pursue this policy? So there are many people who look this from a historic place and they didn't realize, but today they do, but they didn't realize until February 24th that the Russia of Putin is totally different from the Russia we have learned to like to work with during the late 80s and early 90s when we had the fall of the Iron Curtain, when we had the German reunification. And this change of mind of Putin becoming a totalitarian, aggressive leader, I think there there were still a lot of illusions about what Russia is. But the majority now sees it very clear that Russia of Putin is not the Russia that we made peace with after the Second World War. Is it your view that by now, and it is, as you point out, 80 years later, Germany is still too constrained by anxiety over what Germany once was? Because obviously Germany being Germany would seem a natural country to take a leadership position in Europe, especially in formulating unified diplomatic responses to anything. Do you think there is still an overt squeamishness in Germany about asserting itself on a global stage associated with that history? It certainly is. Just eight months ago at the Munich conference, we had a podium with Tony Blinken and Annalena Baerbock, and there was a discussion of, you know, with the threat imminent of Russia, On the 20th of February, the German foreign ministry clearly said, no way we will deliver weapons to Ukraine, because we never again wanted to have German weapons in a direct conflict. We have our guidelines for arms exports that are very restrictive. But this has changed. Diplomatically, we talked about 2014-15 when the first Russian invasion took place. It was Chancellor Merkel together with François Hollande who took the lead. It was not the, the American president. And now this time when it comes to delivery of weapons, we are gradually moving there. But what is happening with the arms that we deliver to Ukraine, this is clearly a turning point in history. And this is about Germany assuming a more assertive role. This is something that we at the Munich Security Conference also believe it's very important that we get out of this excuse that because of our history, we have to be reluctant. But it was true, of course, nobody wanted us. I mean, to have a rearmed Germany, people didn't like that. And it took until German reunification and the role that Germany has been playing with Helmut Kohl and a lot of confidence that we achieved with Chancellor Merkel, who was highly regarded worldwide, where people said, well, Germany, you have to assert yourself. You have to assume a more important role. And this is something where some people said, well, you know, assume a more important role is more costly. We may get into conflict. So let's rather not do it. What I think the lesson has to be today, very clear, Germany, fourth largest economy worldwide. We have to assume more role. I just have one final question. You've been very generous with your time, and it does go back to that period in which you were involved in making decisions about Russia with Chancellor Merkel. Obviously, as you will know, when she left office, she was widely praised around the world as this kind of pillar of sensible, stolid, thoughtful decision-making at a period during which a lot of the Western world had been consumed by general populist weirdness. Do you think what has happened in the last eight months has dented her legacy significantly, especially as a foreign policy leader? 
Of course, you have a lot of criticism now. You know, what we discussed before, how was it possible that despite of the Russian aggression at the time, German government was promoting Nord Stream 2 to make Germany and other countries so much dependent on gas. So this is a legitimate criticism. Also, right now, what I said about what Putin did actually was, from my perspective, had a lot to do that he didn't have any contact. Chancellor Merkel, you know, didn't see... Putin one-on-one for two years and she had been always very open with uh, Putin telling him clearly what he thought and there was respect Putin has speaks German has respect for Germany so these are factors I don't know how much weight they have but these of course play into it and then of course in retrospect um, you see it was the wrong decision but the chancellor this is why she stayed in power for 16 years and if she had said that she wanted to run again she would probably still be chancellor but he said in a democracy you have to stop at a certain stage this policy of moderation this policy of going kind of scientifically at issues you know she resolved so many european crisis you know the euro crisis where she kept Greece in the European Union or the migration crisis where she was ready to have one million Syrian come. The Chancellor did a lot in negotiating for instance on Libya or she got the attention of the European on the Balkans country with the Berlin process getting her. She did so many things. She was very instrumental for all the climate agreements. So I think that and I see this in New York when I'm there she still has this phenomenal reputation and also from that reputation comes what I said earlier, the request from many countries that Germany plays a more important role. So this will certainly remain. But of course, what Putin did there also, of course, has an influence on how the Chancellor is perceived in that particular area of dealing with Russia. That was Ambassador Christoph Heusken, Chairman of the Munich Security Conference. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. Among the guests the Foreign Desk met when we visited Globesec back in June was Svetlana Sikhanovskaya, the leader of Belarus's opposition movement. We caught up with her again in Warsaw. I began by asking how her plans had moved on since we had last spoken. No, actually, a lot has changed with the beginning of the war, first of all, because Belarusian people realize that the very existence of our country is at stake now because Lukashenko has to show loyalty to Putin and he gives step by step our serenity. You know, uh, Lukashenko is very cheap and loyal to Putin and of course uh, Kremlin uses Lukashenko as much as they can. And now Belarusian people realize that they have to fight not only against dictatorship but also for our independence, for our serenity. And people also see that the fate of Ukraine and fate of Belarus are interconnected. That's why we are leading this anti-war movement. We are supporting Ukrainians as much as we can. We are doing all possible, you know, to support Ukrainians in media, on the ground, in Ukraine. Our refugees who fled Belarus because of repressions, supporting and showing solidarity with Ukrainian refugees. All these steps shows that Belarusian regime and Belarusian people are 
different things that we are opposing to this regime and we are fighting for our common values. And the transitional cabinet that was set up is a signal that we are united because we had many questions. Why are you working in different direction? We are not. We are maybe we have different views, but we have like similar goal. And this transitional oriented cabinet was very well percepted both by Belarusian people and our political partners and Belarusian people know where to go, where to apply if they have any, you know, any troubles, questions, propositions. A new branch actually appeared in our cabinet is representation on defense. A new person appeared who knows how to communicate with army, actually with soldiers. He is authority for Belarusian army and he has the same language. You know, this is what I was lack all the time. Our army didn't know how to communicate with me, but now this person is frightening, I would say, regime a lot. And he's dealing with our military volunteers in Ukraine. And actually a lot of Belarusian men want to train just for possible necessity of such people in the future. Because, of course, we are still sticked to the idea of peaceful transition period. But I understand those Belarusians who support more active processes in Belarus, because if you are going out with flowers and you are shot with real bullets, so, of course, you, can, uh, you will think twice what to do. But this branch of defense is not about violence. It's about pressure, it's about stress to regime in Belarus. Is the idea with the transitional cabinet to demonstrate to the people of Belarus that there is a complete alternative apparatus of government that can just be swapped in at some point? Yeah, absolutely. It is called transitional cabinet. It means that when there will be window opportunities for Belarusian people, when Ukrainians win this war, it means that Kremlin is weaker, regime is weaker, and we'll have to use this window of opportunities. And there will be already people who know how to manage the processes inside Belarus. I did want to ask as well, it's something we've seen a lot where Ukraine is concerned over the last eight months, sort of gestures of, I guess, cosmetic solidarity, people hanging up Ukrainian flags, naming streets after Ukraine. I noticed that the other day a Bialystok here in Poland has named a street after Free Belarus. Do gestures like that help when you're trying to do something which isn't cosmetic, when you're trying to replace one government with another? All their signs of solidarity are important. And you can't even imagine how important just simple thing as letters for example to political prisoners because people behind the bars they isolated and if they get a letter from any parliamentarian or any politician or any person from abroad they know that they are not forgotten they are not abandoned and any Belarusian flag on the streets or any participation in extra solidarity with Belarus any tweet you know any mentioning of Belarus are extremely important because sometimes you know people don't know what's going on on political arena of course we explain and we are telling about all our meetings what is achieved on these meetings but when people visualize this support it's inspire them it gives them energy you know people is like battery it's lower and lower and every sign of assistance any sign of solidarity like charging up this battery and don't let people to give up 
I just want to ask finally, and I think we talked about this at Globesec a few months ago, about just your own role and how you're making sense of it. I think our listeners will be familiar with the backstory that this was not a role you sought or a role you wanted and have rather found yourself thrust into. Are you getting any more used to the idea of being president in exile than you were a few months ago? Look, of course, I'm developing politically. I'm not frightened anymore before meetings with presidents or prime ministers. I'm really very honored to represent Belarusian people. But I think that I still remained human, first of all, you know, who want to take care about people, who want to communicate with people. And I actually, I'm not sure if I see myself as a politician in the future. But now it is my duty, you know, to do what I do. People gave me this mandate and I'm trying to do all my best to release my husband, to release thousands of political prisoners. And while I'm needed, while I have strength, while I have energy, you know, to continue this, I will do this. Just finally, finally, if I might, are you able to have any contact with your husband at all? Have you heard from him lately? I can communicate only through the lawyer who visits my husband once a week. You know, my husband was kept in solitary cell for more than two years already, and since 19th of August he's kept in punishment cell. It's an awful place. I think that people from democratic countries can't even imagine the conditions of people in punishment cell. The temperature inside the cell and outside is absolutely similar. Lack of warm clothes. They don't have normal sleep because they have to wake up every couple of hours, you know, to make physical exercises to warm up. They don't have normal food. They're humiliated physically and morally. And it's like personal revenge on the regime for leaders of our movement. It causes people health. It causes people psychological problems. But our prisoners are kept strong. You know, they know that we are fighting for them, that the world, at least democratic countries, are united and consolidated, you know, to support them. And our task, again, is that behind awful events in Ukraine, our political prisoners are not overlooked. That was the leader of Belarus's opposition, Svetlana Sikhanovskaya. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. And finally, on today's show, we hear from another two-time Foreign Desk guest, Francois Bausch, Luxembourg's Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Defence. Like all European governments, Luxembourg's faces the challenge of convincing its public to continue supporting Ukraine through what may prove a difficult winter. I began by asking whether he believed that support would endure. Yes, you know, the stress tells is coming the next month because if you look at the financial packages that all the governments are really implementing at the moment to help the population to really overcome this winter because the energy prices, especially gas and electricity, is going up dramatically. My country, for example, the government decided also in the last few weeks to launch a package of 1.2 billion to support the population. And that's really the stress that will be this winter. And that's what the Kremlin and Putin is waiting. And he wants the population will go against their governments because the population in Europe now really feels the war. The solidarity was easy before summer, because then everybody was very enthusiastic, also in most of European countries. But now we will see, can we keep it over the winter? And I'm optimistic, because if I look at what is happening today in my country, and I think it's nearly the same situation in 
nearly every country, you have some tensions coming up. Mm. You can see it also in elections that are happening now, more right-wing parties being elected, mm. uh, that doing populism on this subject. But yeah, the next winter will be crucial for this war. How important to maintaining especially public support do you think is the impression of Ukrainian military progress? Obviously, that's first and foremost important to Ukraine. But do you think it actually helps make the case to European publics that you can say, so far at least, that look, Ukraine is winning, this is working? Yeah, surely the progress that the Ukrainian military are doing in Ukraine itself by pushing the Russian army, it's from a psychological point of view very important because otherwise the population in Europe will say, oh, yeah, we also we have disadvantages over the winter for what? For a war that will be lost. But now at the moment, everybody thinks that it is possible that Russia can be pushed back, at least that the Ukrainian army could really free again the whole Donbass area. And that's important, I think. But I think also that Russia really largely underestimated the courage and also the determination of the Ukrainian people to fight for their country. And at the moment, as long as this is going on, I think the population will stay behind. There is one major problem, that is the threat of Putin with the atomic bomb. And it's important to look at this and explain also to the population that it's not so easy to engage this, because I think if Mr. Putin or the Kremlin would engage nuclear weapons, that would change also then the behavior of China, of India completely. And so then the whole world will be against Russia. But it's difficult to explain, because in the population, I can feel that many people are asking themselves, Will he do this? Is he capable to do this? How far will he go to defend the situation in Ukraine? Do you think that the West does need to take a more definitive, harder line on what would be the potential consequences for Russia of, of such a use? You have two points. The first one is that inside our country and inside of all the countries in Europe, we should be prepared on a situation like this. So we should take it serious, not really saying, well, that you will never do this. And But on the other side, we should analyze it on a realistic basis and then explain the population that from a realistic point of view, we are not at the point, I think, that he would try to use this weapon because also from a military point of view, that brings nothing. The world would be terrified and shocked, and I think the reaction worldwide would be completely against Russia. And in this, you should also re, uh, then explain it in the population that at the moment, it, the most important thing is to stay behind and keep this solidarity and really support the Ukrainian people. We talked in Madrid about your unusual position of being a green defence minister. And I'm just wondering, do you think more and more countries are beginning to understand that detaching yourself from fossil fuels, especially fossil fuels purchased from fairly obnoxious regimes, is actually a national security imperative? Absolutely. I said the panel where I participated this morning that the Ukraine war, what is the main reason behind this war? And it is the dependence of fossil fuels, because if Europe or the world would not be so dependent of Russian gas or gas in general or fossil fuels in general, the pressure that Putin could make and the Kremlin could make would not be there. So their main asset at the moment is that so that they can play with the dependence of fossil fuels of most of the European countries. So we now see that we lost already a lot of time to engage in energy transition. 
So I think that we must learn the lesson about of this war and really engage definitely in the energy transition and becoming not only more energy efficient, but also really implementing all the alternatives in the energy sector that are existing already for a long time, but had not been implemented for different reasons. It does seem kind of idle to talk about there being silver linings to something like Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but that is potentially something if it does lead to a detachment from Russian fossil fuel, a sort of bigger embrace of cleaner energy. But beyond that outcome, I just wanted to ask, from the conversations you've had with other defence ministers, is there a consensus about how people want this war to end? I mean, obviously taken as read, what people want to see is Ukraine restored to its original borders and Russian occupation forces evicted. But is anybody talking beyond that? Like, what kind of relationship with what kind of Russia do we anticipate having out the other side of this? I think that's the most complicated question, because what will happen in Russia, that's difficult to say at the moment. I think we cannot ignore Russia. Russia must be, again, someday a partner and be a part of the international community. But at the moment, it's difficult to say because you don't know and you don't see if, for example, Mr. Putin would really be embraced from powers, who will be in his place at the end. Will it be worse or better? But I'm not so sure about this because really not a fan. I never was a fan of the Kremlin and Mr. Putin. But you hear voices behind Mr. Putin. They are worse than him. And that makes it also so difficult to see a window of opportunity to re-engage again on the diplomatic level because you can't stop the war without one day coming again of the, on the negotiation table. And then is the question, what will you negotiate with this power that is in place at the moment? That was Francois Bausch, Luxembourg's Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Defence. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer available every Wednesday. And tune in next Saturday for a special extended interview with NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. We don't face risk-free options. There are risks connected to any decision that we will take connected to the war in Ukraine because we face a dangerous and aggressive policy by President Putin and the Russian armed forces. That's next Saturday on The Foreign Desk. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.